This is one of the things that personally surprised me the most is that a lot of fantasies did not even contain sex. So people would just focus on certain sensations, but it wouldn't actually have to lead to sex in whatever way you define sex. Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Take a second to think about your favorite sexual fantasy. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions about it. Where does this fantasy take place? In your own bed? On the beach? In a hotel? Maybe even in outer space? What perspective do you see things from? Is it like you're watching a movie, or are you seeing it through your own eyes as if you were actually there? Do you appear in your own fantasy? And if so, is it an exact replica of who you are in real life, or do you change your appearance, or perhaps even your personality? Also, is there a complete storyline to your fantasy, with a beginning, middle, and end, or is it just a single scene? I am fascinated by people's fantasies and the incredible diversity and variability in terms of how we see them and how we see ourselves in these scenarios. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to explore some of the interesting details of our fantasy worlds. I have an incredible guest for you who has conducted some incredible and illuminating research in this area. I am joined by Mariella Tejoda, a psychologist and researcher from Amsterdam. From 2018 to 2021, she and her colleagues at Company New Heroes conducted the largest ever study of sexual fantasies in the Netherlands and Belgium as part of a creative project titled Yes, Please. They interviewed over 400 people about their fantasies and subsequently published a Dutch-language book about their findings under the same name. This project also resulted in various theater performances and a traveling erotic exhibition, The goal of the project was to celebrate the erotic imagination and to break the taboos surrounding our fantasies and sexuality by bringing together art, storytelling, and science. Mariella currently works as a therapist at a Dutch trauma center where she works with survivors of sexual violence. This is going to be a truly fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. The Kinsey Institute at Indiana University has been a trusted source for scientific knowledge and research on critical issues in sexuality, gender, and reproduction for over 75 years. Learn about recent research, events, and student activities at America's premier sex research institute in their recently released annual report on their website. Find it over at kinseyinstitute.org and be sure to follow them on social media at Kinsey Institute. Hi, Mariella, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) I'm so excited to speak with you. (laughs) So I met you in Amsterdam a couple of years ago while teaching a study abroad course there. And since then, you've come and talked to my students about your research on sexual fantasies a few times, which has been absolutely incredible because your work is so, so interesting. But before we dive into it, let me first ask what it is that got you interested in studying sexual fantasies in the first place? What drew you to this area? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, it's just a fascinating topic, isn't it? It is. I mean, why why are we interested in sex? <laughs> I think what I find incredibly fascinating about sexual fantasies is 
And I'd say our imagination in general is it's one of our most human qualities. It's truly what makes us different from from other animals. It's our ability to imagine completely different worlds and scenarios and, and our mind can really take us anywhere. Sexual fantasies are also what can make our sex life truly enriching, right? It's what takes sex from just being mere reproduction to something that can transform it into this beautiful thing that we can take you know get so much life energy from and so sexual fantasies to me are incredibly important and so when I got this opportunity to work on this research project and to talk to other people about their fantasies it's actually hear what other people are fantasizing about I was of course incredibly excited and as I was doing the research which I mean I'm sure I'll Tell more about it in a second. I had so many friends tell me like, oh gosh, I wish I could be a fly on the wall as you do these interviews and hear what people tell you because it's it's incredibly fascinating, but also incredibly special when someone is willing to share their sexual fantasies with you because very often they reveal something very deep about us, about who we are and what it is that we long for and what our emotional needs are. And it is that vulnerability that is in expressing our sexual fantasies that what made this project truly special and what made me so interested in working on this. I think you described that so, so well. And it's similar to why I was drawn to studying sexual fantasies myself in the first place. It's because there is something that is so special, so important about it. And also uniquely human. You know, as far as we know, animals don't fantasize. Maybe they do, but, you know. I hope if they do that we'll find out one day. (laughs) (laughs) That would be truly fascinating. I did see that there's new AI techniques, I believe, that are able to make projections of activation of our brain in certain ways. So maybe maybe AI will help us find out if animals have fantasies too. (laughs) Maybe in the future. So I love talking about sexual fantasies, and I love your research specifically because it was so unique. So you literally drove around the Netherlands and interviewed people about their fantasies in this tricked-out little van. You went to festivals and big events and got people to come in and talk to you about their deepest fantasies. So paint a picture for us. How did this process work? How did you collect your data, and what was the inspiration behind that process? Right. Well, I got to start off by saying I did not do this alone. So I was working for a company called Company New Heroes, which is a company founded by a bunch of creatives, people working in theater, uh, people who make art installations and so on, who work on projects where they always take some topic, often some sort of societal problem that is of importance to them or that they find really interesting. And then they make that into a theater show or a podcast or a documentary or something creative. And so I got the opportunity to work with them as a researcher. So I had a team of other people with who I did these interviews. And given how creative they were, uh, we got a small caravan that we turned into a recording studio. And I should say they, because... I mean, I got to use this awesome little caravan that we had, but I didn't actually build it. So we had this little caravan and we turned it into a recording studio. And we decided to drive across the Netherlands and Belgium 
or at least Dutch speaking parts of Belgium and go to places where we could meet people from all walks of life. So festivals, but also we even went to a household fair, like, I mean, sex festivals, lots of different places. And we took a little caravan there and we turned it into a recording studio that was fully soundproof. So you got to imagine this caravan is really small. It was actually so small, you could not stand up straight inside. It had two chairs inside. So as soon as you would open it, it would be tiny, two chairs, a recording device, lots of red velvet, very cozy, very sensual and erotic, of course. Um, and even from the outside, it looked really creative. We gave it lots of different colors. As soon as people would see this, right, like we'd be at a, let's say, music festival, people would see it and they would be immediately drawn to it because they would want to know what is it. And so we'd stand there and tell people while we're conducting this study about sexual fantasies, would you like to be interviewed? And I think very many people in different circumstances never would have agreed to be interviewed about their sexual fantasies, actually said yes and stepped inside. And because it was fully soundproof, people were willing to share fantasies that very often they'd never shared before, not even with their partners. It was it was incredible how people felt completely safe to tell their secrets, basically. And I should maybe add, because people might be wondering, so why were you doing this? And why were you doing this, you know, with people who are making theater? So basically the way the organization Company New Heroes work is that for every project they do, they will first have a research phase where they thoroughly research something to really understand it. And only then will they make some sort of creative project out of it. And in this case, the research phase sort of got out of hand <laughs> with building the caravan and then going to all these different places. And we we ended up interviewing over 400 people just because it went so well and and everywhere we went we got this amazing response and then eventually I mean as I'm sure we're going to talk about later as well we managed to get a book deal and we collected all of these fantasies that we heard into a book that sadly has not been published in English it's been published in Dutch and yeah we made it into a book. Yeah I love this whole process that you went through and I feel a little bit of, I don't know what the word is I want to use, maybe envious that I just did a survey and didn't, you know, go out and interview people and kind of have that same experience that you did because you're getting this very rich information about people's fantasies that it's kind of hard to replicate through any other means. So I just love the approach here. And I'm so glad that you and your team did this really creative study of fantasies. And it kind of reminds me of the pioneering research of Alfred Kinsey. Now, he didn't have a tricked out van that he drove around the States. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he, he did the same thing in terms of sitting down and meticulously interviewing people about their sex lives. And both an interview and a survey can tell us a lot about people's fantasies, but they yield this very different data. You know, with an interview, it's very dynamic and you can customize it to the individual. So walk us through that process of interviewing somebody about their fantasies. What are the key questions that you ask them? So the first question we would always ask people is just simply, can you tell us what your sexual fan or erotic fantasies are about? And we would always have a couple of follow-up questions to ask, but one very important one would always be, what is it that turns you on so much about these fantasies? Because we would interview in such a way that we're really trying to understand, like, why is this so erotic for you? Why does this turn you on? What makes this fancy so special to you? So really trying to dig very deep. And initially it was a process of trial and error, but we developed a list of questions that we asked eventually, almost every interview, which would include questions such as like, where does your fancy take place? You know, are you in an environment? Is there a setting? Is, is 
Is it a scenario or is it just a mental image? From what viewpoint do you see your fantasies if it's a mental image? Because for many people, it's not. But do you see it through your own eyes or... Are you like the director of your own film, so to speak, where you're seeing yourself in the action? We would ask people like, who's there? And these people who are there, do they have faces? Are you able to tell who they are? Do they have an identity? Because for very many people, they would say, well, I see a body, but the body doesn't really have a face. We would ask people, what do you feel? So we found that often for very many people, fantasies are not just a mental image, but like all the senses are included. So they would say, I hear things, I feel things, like I can feel snow on my skin or I hear like these moans around me. And that would really enrich the fantasy to include all the different senses in the fantasy. We would say, how do you see yourself? Are you the way you are now? Are you younger? Are you older? Are you more confident? Like how, what's your identity in the fantasy? And very often people will fantasize about some ideal version of themselves, someone that they would really want to be. We would ask them, would you want to ever experience this fantasy? For very many people, the answer was no. They would say it would never be as amazing in real life. Like in my fantasy, everything can be perfect. Every little detail is perfect and ideal in exactly the way that I want it. And if I were to try and recreate this in, in real life, no matter how hard I try it, like it would just, it would just wouldn't happen. And we would also ask people questions such as like, have you shared this with anyone else? And if not, why? And I'd say one of the most consistent findings in our studies is just the amount of sexual shame people feel and how limiting that shame is. So many people told us about the extent to which they self-center. They would say, you know, I have these fantasies, but I feel like I can't have them. I should not be having these thoughts. It's wrong. Like, why do I have these thoughts? And that's probably also the part of the study that like personally made me the saddest. Like on the one hand, it was amazing to hear all these fantasies and have people share so much with us. And on the other hand, so many people feel such tremendous sexual shame around their fantasies. And it's such a shame when we limit one of our most creative abilities, which is our imagination. And so we'd ask people questions about that. Like, why is it that you're ashamed of your fantasy? And then, as I said, we would always ask people, what is it that turns you on so much about this fantasy? And we found that very often people would then tell you things that really helped us understand the fantasy. So even whenever people told me a fantasy as something I would never fantasize, something that would never turn me on, when people start telling you like what it is that turns them on, that makes them tick, that makes this fantasy really erotic for them, like you start to understand. And so even the fantasies that people found the most shameful as a listener, you can get to a point where you're like, you know what, this makes sense to me. I can see why that would turn you on. Because very often there's this underlying emotional need that is expressed through the fantasy. The desire to be desired and the need to belong, to feel attractive and wanted, to feel seen. These sort of core emotional needs that we have as human beings are conveyed through these fantasies. And um, so that for me was always one of my favorite questions and because it got incredibly personal. Yeah, it's so interesting. And you gathered so much fascinating data here. But I do agree that that question of what is it about the fantasy that turns you on is a really key one. Because when somebody else tells a fantasy to us or we read about somebody's fantasy, I think we're often projecting onto that. You know, we're kind of putting ourselves in that scenario and thinking about, well, how would we feel in that particular situation? But if you don't know what it is that is really key or crucial about that fantasy to that individual, you might be missing the bigger picture, which is part of the reason why in my own research, I had people describe their fantasy in narrative form. And then I said, okay, 
what is the main theme of this fantasy? You know, what is it that is the most important part or element to you? And oftentimes I would look at, you know, what they said the theme was versus what they described as a fantasy and they didn't match up for me. Like I was seeing something else in it. So it's really important to have that perspective of, you know, what is it about the fantasy that is really important to you? Now, I want to dive into some of the specific questions you asked and talk about them in a little bit more detail. So in my research on fantasies, I defined it for participants as a mental image that's sexually arousing to you. And that's consistent with how other psychologists have defined it for decades. So there's this big emphasis on the visual component. But as you mentioned, fantasies can be multisensory. You know, I asked people, is there an auditory component to your fantasies? And does that mean, for example, people might be talking, you might be saying something, there's dirty talk, or is there music playing? And as it turned out, sounds were very important to a lot of my participants. I also had a lot of people who described tastes and smells as being very important as well. You know, I'm thinking about this one fantasy in particular where it was a woman who described being on the beach with her lover and it was the feel of the breeze on her skin and the smell and taste of the champagne that they were drinking. And, you know, it was this very multi-sensory experience. It wasn't actually so much about sex, but it was about like all of that sensory input all at the same time. So tell us a little bit more about the role that senses play in our fantasies. Yeah, that's such a good point. This is one of the things that personally surprised me the most is that a lot of fantasies did not even contain sex. So people would just focus on certain sensations, but it wouldn't actually have to lead to sex in whatever way you define sex. For example, I think of this one fantasy where a woman described lying in the snow and being very focused on a sensation of the snow and the coldness on her skin. And, and just that would be incredibly arousing for her. And sometimes her partner would come and join in that fantasy. But more often than not, it was just the snow for her. And so we heard many, many fantasies where people would be aroused by sensation in a way that was almost, it reminded me of fetishes almost, where, you know, when people have a fetish, they, they're very much aroused by one specific object. And in many of these fantasies, people would be aroused by ver one very specific sensation. So for me, that was one of the most surprising findings of our study, well, because I guess I personally, sadly, don't have fantasies in that way. So I thought that was really surprising. Yeah, that fantasies are not always mental images and they can just be the thought of a certain sensation. And we also found that when we asked people about their fantasies or, you know, they would come into our caravan and we would say, or we'd ask them, you know, what are your sexual fantasies about? And very many people would be like, well, I'm not sure if I fantasize or I don't think I have any erotic fantasies. And then as we started asking them their questions, they themselves would be surprised by their answers and would be like, oh, actually, yeah, I mean... If I masturbate to the idea of lying in the snow, like, I guess that is a sexual fantasy and it is. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's such an important point. You know, I have some participants, you know, it's roughly two to 3% across all the different studies I've done who say that they don't have fantasies. And whenever I talk about this, some people are like, well, they must just be lying. And I think that's not necessarily the case. You know, some people might lie and not admit that they have fantasies because they're ashamed of them. But I think a lot of people have fantasies that they just don't count as fantasies because they think it has to have some fantastical element or it has to be centered around a specific sex act. But, you know, as you described, fantasies can be very diverse, very multisensory. They don't always look the same. Now, building off of what we were just talking about, 
you know, the place, the setting of the fantasy is super important for some people, but for other people, the setting doesn't matter at all. You know, it's all just about what they're doing or who they're doing it with. But when the setting matters, what are the kinds of places people fantasize about having sex aside from being out in the snow? You know, so what are some common fantasy settings and why are these settings so important? I think very often when people fantasize about a specific setting, it's about novelty or adventure. So which is what, of course, one of the categories also in your book. So it's about experiencing someplace new, someplace adventurous. It's being on vacation, on an airplane, in the sea. So it's the setting is often what makes the fancy arousing. In those sorts of situations, do we see that people really care about the setting? It can be a sex club, a place where people would never go, or maybe they would go to these sorts of places, but wouldn't actually dare to do what they would really want to do there, or that would not be possible in real life. And so that would then become the focus of their fantasy. So you said around 3% of people did not think they did not have fantasies. And we found the same thing that very often when people would initially say, I don't think I have any fantasies, there would often be these misconceptions about what is a sexual erotic fantasy. For example, we noticed people always believe the fantasy has to include a sexual act, which is of course not the case. But also very many people believe there would have to be this storyline or there would have to be a setting. There would have to be some sort of scenario. A lot of people seem to think that sexual fantasies need to be the sort of movie in your mind where there's a clear beginning and an end and this and that happens and there's a certain environment. And clearly that is not what a sexual fantasy is for a lot of people. So since you mentioned the storyline, that was actually going to be one of my questions. You know, some people have these very elaborate fantasies where there's a clear beginning and middle and end. Other people don't have a fleshed out story at all. It just cuts right to the middle, right to the action, and and that's it. And, you know, maybe the fantasy ends once they have an orgasm in real life, you know, so it doesn't necessarily go any further than that. But for some people, the fantasy plays out over a long period of time. They might have this fantasy that goes on for minutes, maybe even hours, you know, depending on how detailed it is. And also for other people, sometimes it's just the prelude to sex. It's sort of everything that leads up to it is the most arousing part. And the sex is kind of an afterthought. You know, maybe they've finished having the fantasy, they've had their orgasm or whatever the end point is for that fantasy. And it doesn't even get any further than just maybe some flirting or foreplay or something along those lines. So yeah, I think that's an important point that, you know, fantasies don't always have to be these elaborate stories. But something that really fascinates me about fantasies is the perspective from which people have them. So, you know, are you watching a movie and maybe you're a character in it? Or are you taking like a first person POV perspective where you're literally there and seeing it through your own eyes? And I neglected to ask people about this in my original research because I hadn't thought about it at the time. I hadn't seen any other research on it. And also for me personally, all of my fantasies and my dreams are all from that like third person, I'm watching a movie and I'm a character in it perspective. And I kind of mistakenly assumed that everybody (laughs) had fantasies in the same way as me. Turns out they don't. I've done some research since. But tell us a little bit about what you've learned there. You know, is one of these perspectives more common than another? And why do you think people take different perspectives in their fantasies? Given the study that we did, for me, that's really difficult to answer because we did interviews. And so I don't have any quantitative data. So it's hard to say in any definite way whether one sort of perspective was more common than the other. Anecdotally, I had the impression that women would very often 
see fantasies from a third person perspective. So they see themselves in the action. Whereas that seemed to be a little bit less common among men. And I think that potentially could be because women have internalized the male gaze, often perhaps through porn. Or, I mean, of course, the male gaze is ubiquitous in our culture. So that seems to be something that very many women have internalized. And so even in their fantasies, they see themselves as this sexual object almost and often get turned on by that as well. And so I thought that was incredibly fascinating. Again, that's just something that I can't conclude 100% based on the research that we did. But anecdotally, that was my impression. Yeah, and that seems to be consistent with my observations as well, that there does seem to be a gender difference here, and it does seem to be tied in some way to the fact that women on average are more likely to see themselves as the object of desire in their fantasies. I did an episode of the podcast previously with Dr. Marta Miena, who has done some work on what she calls erotic self-focus. And what she has found is actually that seeing yourself as the object of desire, yes, there's that big gender difference, but gay men also tend to represent themselves in a similar way in their fantasies as heterosexual women more likely to see themselves as the object of desire. And now this has me thinking about this podcast I was listening to recently. I was listening to a Howard Stern interview of Pete Davidson while I was at the gym, and they were talking about Pete's masturbation and you know what he's like thinking about when he masturbates. And there was this line he said that really resonated with me, that stuck with me, where he said, how crazy or weird would I have to be to be thinking about myself when I masturbate? And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You know, that is the way I think a lot of heterosexual men think about this, that like seeing themselves as the object of desire in their fantasy makes them uncomfortable. It seems weird or foreign to them. You know, I don't know what the reason for that is. I think for some people, and I'm not saying Pete has internalized homophobia, but I think for some people that might be why they don't see themselves as the object of desire. But just in general, heterosexual men are, have that lower likelihood of kind of like eroticizing the self in their fantasy, and they're much more focused on their partner. And, you know, heterosexual men are much more likely to have this very specific other person in mind, whereas, you know, on average, women are more likely to have fantasies about this vague, faceless person. You know, as you mentioned, some people just describe a body being there, but it's not a specific person. So I'm rambling here, but all of this is just to say our fantasies are so fascinating and so diverse in so many ways. This actually also reminds me that something related to this that we noticed is that women's fantasies are very often about them getting what they want sexually. Whereas we noticed a lot of men will talk about pleasing the other person. And if you take that at face value, right, you might be like, oh, hey, that's gender roles in, in reversal, men being very giving and wanting the other person to be, you know, enjoying themselves, whereas women are suddenly very selfish and, you know, taking what they want. But in a way, that's also tied to this perspective that we take, perhaps, where, you know, the men see the fancy, very often see it through their own eyes, and so see this woman enjoy whatever they do, right? There it is. Very often men would describe their fancies as, you know, I'm the strong man. I can do all these things I can't do in real life. I can go on for hours and make her come again, 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 again. Whereas women would still be the object of desire. And so they would say, you know, I'm getting what I want, but they would still be 
watching themselves very often through a third-person perspective. And so in a way, like you could argue that it's not a sort of gender role reversal and there's still some sort of stereotypical tendencies in there. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, there are so many different ways to analyze this. And it has me thinking about how there's this broader perception or stereotype of men is only being interested in their own pleasure, but in their fantasies, they're very much about giving their partner pleasure and men find that to be very arousing. And, you know, if you look at heterosexual men specifically, the female orgasm, the sounds that women make, what we call female copulatory vocalizations in the literature are things that facilitate the male orgasm. So signs of partner pleasure are very much a turn on to men. And that's a very core part of their fantasy. So it's just, it's interesting when you think about it through that lens, because the stereotype is that men are just out there only for their own pleasure, but that doesn't seem to be the way that their erotic narrative works in the fantasies. Now, I want to ask about one other question that you focused on in this research, which was how people represented themselves in their fantasies. You know, in my own work, I found it was highly variable. Most people see themselves in their fantasies, but most people also change themselves in some way. So they might have a different body size or genital size, or they might have a different personality. In some cases, people become other people or other creatures, you know, where they're represented or embodied, you know, by another figure in their fantasies. So what did you learn in your work about how people see themselves or represent themselves in their fantasies? Yeah, as I said before, I think very often people would think of their ideal selves in fantasy. So they would envision themselves in the way that they would like to be. So often more confident or having, from their viewpoint, a better body or uh, sometimes even older. I remember one very fascinating fantasy of a woman who would fantasize about having sex with her older self, who was sort of more confident, more, you know, everything sort of she wanted to be and then being, you know, sexually pleased by that. But also, as you said, yeah, very many people would fantasize about being different creatures or turning into historical figures. I even heard uh, one particular woman fantasized about being Marie Antoinette and having men like crawl under her skirt to please her. I mean, there's all these creative things you can do with your identity. And very many people do take on different forms, shapes and sizes, but also very many people didn't. Or they would say, oh, gosh, I've never actually thought about that. But then when you ask them more questions, they would be like, you know what? I think I'm a more confident version of myself. Or in my fancy, I dare doing all these things that I would actually never dare doing in real life. And so there was a lot of, I'd say, yeah, a lot of creativity that could be seen in the ways in which people see themselves in their fancies. I love that Marie Antoinette fantasy. Yeah, that one was great. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't emerge in my own research, but so, so fascinating. And it's also really interesting when you talk about the age-related fantasies. This was something I did look at as well. And, you know, there's sort of a stereotype in our culture about women kind of being more youth-obsessed than men. And so you might think, based on that, that in their fantasies, women on average would be going back in time more often than men, being this younger version of themselves. But actually what I found in my research was that it was more common for men to fantasize about being younger again, but it was more common for women to fantasize about being this future or older version of themselves. And I think what explains that is that for women, they're often imagining being that more confident person, you know, the person who doesn't give a fuck about what other people think, right? Um, Or they're more comfortable or confident in their body. And by contrast, for men, you know, in terms of why they're 
picturing that past version of the self, the younger version, I think it's often because in men's fantasies, they're going back to the opportunities that got away. You know, they're thinking about the experiences that they didn't have, that they wished they would have had. And so I think there's something interesting going on there. And, you know, the way we represent ourselves in our fantasies, I think does say something about us and where we are in our life right now, but it also says something about our culture too. And, you know, just the way that that has shaped us in terms of how we think about sex. Definitely. And it's actually interesting you mentioned this because it made me realize that in our study, I don't really think we spoke to people who envisioned themselves at a younger age in the fantasy. I mean, unless people were fantasizing about previous sexual experiences, which is very common for people to go back to experiences they've had and relive those. But other than that, there was no one that specifically mentioned, like, I see myself as a younger, let's say, hotter version of myself. Very often people would fantasize about an older version of themselves, but I'm not sure. I I don't actually think we heard that. So it's interesting you point that out. So interesting. And this also has me thinking about, you know, what are some of the other characteristics that might go along with why people fantasize about a younger version? Maybe, for example, people with sexual difficulties now might fantasize about being a past version of themselves when they didn't have that particular difficulty. Or maybe for people who are concerned about the way that they've aged and, you know, how that has changed their own perception of attractiveness. Maybe they're going back in time. There could be so many different things going on here. It's not just about gender. There's a lot of other aspects that could be important. Now, we're going to have a follow-up discussion in the next episode where we dive deeper into the specific themes in people's fantasies, and I can't wait for that. I can't wait either. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Mariella. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Of course, they can learn more about the project. The research that we did is called Yes, Please. You can find it on uh, via the website of the organization that I work with, which is called Company New Heroes. So if you Google Company New Heroes, Yes, Please, I'm sure you'll find our website. And again, we have a book, which is in Dutch. Any Dutch listeners, uh, the book is also called Yes, Please. And uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. This is really great. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you here, and I'll be sure to include links to everything in the show notes. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, if you want to learn more about sexual fantasies. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.